0: Good evening to you. Mark chapter 6 this evening, Sunday evenings through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with a Bible, and wave to them and they'll put it in your hands and you'll be able to follow along with us this evening and not only hear the Word of God, but see it with your own eyes. And I don't know how many of you in the room here tonight uh, realize what a blessing we have this evening. And uh, I want to acknowledge it. It is so great to have Don Tyson with us after so long in uh, recovery from uh, the motorcycle accident. And Don, these are the things that just bless us in, in God's family. And I just can't tell you what it means to see your face and, and to worship the Lord together in the same room again. So what a, what a blessing. We love you. Mark chapter 6, it's an interesting chapter, and it begins with um, what I think. It's funny when you read the Scriptures and you look at what's kind of a happy event or what might be a sad event, and to me when we come to this particular uh, incident that begins the chapter, I it, to me it's one of the saddest uh, incidents in the entire life of of Jesus, and I think about how much uh, pain came to him uh, from his hometown of Nazareth. When he first began his public ministry following the baptism by John the Baptizer and the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the temptation in the wilderness, uh, he made a, a, a move directly back up into the northern region from the area of uh, of Jerusalem, and he went up to his hometown of Nazareth, and uh, and he revealed himself as the promised Messiah to them first, and did so from the Scriptures prophetically. And their response to his sharing of the Scripture and h- their response to um, what he taught from the Scripture was that they were highly offended by him and, uh, and attempted really to run him. Uh, it, it, end the, his ministry right at the beginning of a public ministry, and run him right off the cliff that uh, uh, marks the you know geography of, of Nazareth. Jesus now comes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's in the latter part of his uh, three and a half years of his public ministry. He's in, in the year, the year of opposition, and uh, everything is building now in terms of opposition. Uh, toward the cross. And we're told that then He went out from there, and He came to His own country, again up in the north in the Galilee region, and uh, specifically His hometown of Nazareth. And His disciples uh, followed Him. Uh, Nazareth had been His hometown for 30 years, I mean, he, his entire life was 33 and a half years, and 30 years were spent being a carpenter there uh, in that uh, city. Pure grace that he would even return to the city uh, in light of how they had treated him three years earlier. Uh, but, but he does so. One of the things that's interesting uh, about the city of Nazareth here, and, and again, heartbreaking uh, to me is that in all of the chapters that lead up to this incident in chapter 6, and then we're going to see all the way through the remainder of chapter 6 and on the way, that everywhere Jesus goes, he cannot avoid a crowd. Uh, whether he's crossing the Sea of Galilee by boat, they watch where he's going, they see where he's landing, and you've got multitudes of people who are literally running around the banks of the Sea of Galilee in order to f- be at the spot where he sets down upon land in, in, in order to now hear his teaching and receive a touch from him, just to be in contact with him. And he comes to the city of Nazareth, and there's no mention of a crowd. And now here he is, now the three years later in his public ministry, everybody knows about him. Everybody knows about the teaching, everybody knows about the miracles. He is famous not only in Israel, but his fame has gone into the surrounding uh, nations. You would have thought that the city of Nazareth would have thrown a ticker tape parade for him. Here is the local boy who's done good, who's done uh, very, very good for a city that everybody declared could anything good come out of Nazareth. But there's none of that. There is none of that for him when he comes back to the city. The fascinating thing, the most fascinating thing is not that that happened to him. The most fascinating thing is why they responded to him in that way as the passage unfolds that uh, for us. And so Jesus, then he, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And so he's teaching in the synagogue there in Nazareth on that Sabbath day, and many hearing him, they listened to his teaching. I'd love to hear his teaching. And they heard him, and they were astonished. When they listened to him teach, it was just jaw-dropping, his insights into God, into life, into the Word uh, of God. And, uh, and in their astonishment, these questions were raised that they began to pose to one another. And what's sad about it is they posed the questions uh, in their own mind to themselves. They posed their questions to one another, but did not pose the questions uh, to Jesus, the one who could have uh, adequately answered it for him. And notice the questions that were provoked in their mind by his teaching. Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this that is given to him, that such mighty works are performed uh, by his hands? And all of those questions were great, great questions. And uh, all of them, as they listen to Jesus' teaching, he evidently does miracles as well, confirming the word with accompanying signs and wonders. And the only honest conclusion to what it is that they're hearing and what it is that they're seeing is the very thing he told them three years earlier, that he was, the, was and is the promised Jewish Messiah and the Son of God. And he comes back out of his grace just one final time before the cross to reveal this to them again and allow them to treat him uh, differently than they had done uh, years uh, earlier. And what puzzles them here is the fact that Jesus comes in and apparently with what he's teaching here, and we know that Uh, others had said concerning his teaching that he doesn't teach like uh, the Pharisees, he doesn't teach like the scribes, he he doesn't… he's not this accumulation of human knowledge and studying what all of the other rabbis were saying, and then when he would teach something he would say, Rabbi Shimei says this, Rabbi Hillel says this. When Jesus would open up the Scriptures, he would open up the Scriptures. And he would tell them with authority what they actually meant, what the law of Moses was intended to do and be in human history, and whatever else he might be discussing from the Word of God. And what shocked them was that he had this kind of revelation and he had this kind of learning without having gone to any of the religious schools in Jerusalem he hadn 't studied under any of the famous rabbis he hadn 't been uh, to what was the equivalent of seminary uh, in those days and uh, and so they were wondering how in the world uh, could somebody teach like this without having a formal uh, religious education and not realizing uh, that the teaching was coming from the greatest qualification that anyone could ever have in terms of as a teacher and that he uniquely possessed and that that was teaching was coming from the very thing that they rejected, and that was that he was the Messiah and that he was the Son of God. It's interesting that uh, God the Father and Jesus himself determined that the overwhelming proportion of Jesus' 33 years of His incarnation, His time uh, spent in the, in the world, that that time would be spent as a carpenter, uh, that it would be, He would, he, he would uh, live those 33 years in what is a very, very much a blue-collar background, uh, both then and now. And the first thing that comes out of their mind, again, not asking him any questions about this. Uh, they don't need any answers from him. They can figure it out on their own. And the first uh, the protest that occurs within their mind in verse 3 is, is this not the carpenter? And, th- and that's all they could see him uh, as, is the fact that he was the carpenter who was raised here and grew up here and worked in his father's uh, carpenter shop. It is interesting to me, and I, and I think it's instructive and important to, to recognize again that you think of all of the places that God the Father could have invested the first 33 of a very, very limited 33 years of Jesus' life in preparation for representing heaven, representing God the Father, teaching the Word of God, you would have thought that the best place that that could happen would have been in Jerusalem. The same conclusion is the population there in Nazareth. And yet God takes and says, I'm going to make a key part of the preparation of my son for his public ministry, is I'm going to make him a carpenter, and, uh, and I'm going to make that a part of his preparation. I'm going to put him in a position in a city where he is going to interact with every kind of human being uh, imaginable, and I'm going to even raise him in probably one of the roughest cities in Jerusalem at the time. Again, can anything good come out of, of Nazareth? And, and I don't doubt that part of this was in order that uh, no one, in terms of Jesus' background here as a carpenter, is in order that no one would ever be able to despise any man or woman in the body of Christ that God would call to a position of leadership or whatever or influence within his body and within the world. And when he calls them like David, out of obscurity, out of blue-collar work, out of lower-than-blue-collar work, and, and, that, and then to look and to, uh, to realize that God does use and often uses people without any formal uh, religious kind of education. But they're deep in God. They're deep in the Word of God. They love God. They've surrendered to God in the way that we've even sung about here uh, tonight. Campbell Morgan, no college, uh, Bible college background or seminary. Charles Spurgeon, the disciples, so many uh, others in that same category. And if Jesus had come from some kind of a religious institution as a background, we would automatically do what we already fight against in this culture, and that is to assume that that is the highway, the highest way, and even the only way to be prepared for a life of ministry to the Lord. But the Lord has a lot of different ways of, of preparing us for His calling, and oftentimes it doesn't involve those things, but something that is very different, and the rest of the world would look at it and not understand that there's inadequate preparation at all. It is my personal opinion, and that is a, a, uh, that's a, a very qualified uh, statement for what comes next. It means, hold on to your wallet. But in my personal opinion, I don't think God can do whatever He wants, but I do not think that it's ideal for a young person in their teens or in their 20s to go right from school in their youth and then into Bible college or into a seminary. All of that is fine. I don't have a problem with that. But then to go from uh, that environment, uh, then straight into what we call full-time ministry. And I think without a significant stint of working in the nitty-gritty of the secular world a- as a part of our education and our preparation for ministry as well. Again, God can do whatever He wants, but I think that there's a, there can be a challenge to that. And that is if we're only in these kind of hyper-spiritual environments. It is, those are environments that if I'm not in contact with the world, the difficulty of the world, and, and the challenges of the world, and the fallenness of the world around me, not it's sin, but to be in the midst of it, to escape all of that and head into some kind of, of a public area of ministry in the body of Christ, I think it's too dangerous to then become proud to become arrogant to be harsh toward the world and not to un- not to understand it because we haven't been been steeped in it again god can do whatever he likes he does it all kinds of different ways i am thankful for personally for all of the jobs that i ever held before i ever became a pastor and i held an awful lot of jobs and thankful for what it was that that i uh, That I learned there, the experience that I learned, the way of looking at people the uh, the, the harshness of life uh, so often, and that of course doesn 't change in ministry or, or anything uh, like that, but the life experience is has been absolutely invaluable to me it 's interesting that Jesus, when he calls all of his disciples his apostles uh, and who he makes apostles, he pulls them all out of that environment. He pulls them all out of either making, uh, uh, catching fish, or taxes, or somehow uh, in very much connected with the nitty-gritty of of life uh, in in the world. And then, uh, and even Paul later, when Paul got saved, and before God launches him out into Paul's public ministry. Paul has spent uh, the uh, the early part of his life almost exclusively in religious environments and uh, and in in the halls of religion in Jerusalem and in Tarsus and elsewhere. And then you look at Paul and you see the the severity, the compassionless life, again, the judgmental, proud life uh, that resulted from that. And what did God do with the Apostle Paul before he became the Apostle Paul? He said, as a part of your training, I'm going to send you back to Tarsus. Everybody around you probably thinks, you know, this is the greatest thing could happen. You are ready right out of the chute. Let this guy loose. And what does God do? He sends him back to the obscurity of Tarsus and has him make tents for 10 years. And then at the end of the 10 years, and only then, Does he open up doors for the Apostle Paul to then become the significant influence that he ultimately uh, became? And so they were offended at him. And one of the things that they were offended about it it was his blue collar background, the fact that he was a carpenter. And uh, and and I think as I look at this entire uh, scene, the thing that stumbled them the most in terms of Jesus and accepting him as Messiah, accepting him as the Son of God, was what I, I would say it was familiarity. They rejected him because he was too familiar to them, and they'd grown up around him for thirty years, and they uh, and knowing him or thinking that they knew him. Uh, they rejected him out of that familiarity. They thought they knew him, but they didn't. And I think that's one of the challenges that people face growing up in the United States. Not so much anymore, but it's still there with its Christian heritage, or children that are raised in a Christian home, and we want them all raised in a Christian home. But sometimes they'll Uh, they'll reject Jesus and run after every kind of spiritual and philosophical nonsense that they run into as soon as they get out of the household. And they look at Jesus and they think Jesus is too familiar. I've heard about him all my life. My whole life has been centered around him. Uh, everybody that I know follows Jesus. And then in that time in life where there's that tendency to want to make, uh, cut our own path in life and be thought of as something uh, different, the familiarity of Jesus stumbles us. Or we think that because we've sat in rooms like this maybe growing up or whatever it might be, and we've sung songs and we've been taught the Bible and all, that we know Him by virtue of those things. When we may not know anything about Him at all, until there's the surrender of our life to Him, and in desperation we make Him our Lord and we make Him our Savior, and then commit to follow Him on that that kind uh, of of a level. All of it uh, coming with that that spiritual uh, birth. One of the things that I love is that, and I think about one man. I won't name him. Uh, but dear to our heart here at Calvary Chapel, and raised, and he's the example to me of, uh, of all of this. And uh, he wouldn't mind me using his name, but I won't. And here he grows up in a Christian home. I mean, as good a Christian home as you could ever grow up in, and around the things of the Lord, and, and, and uh, every asset that he could possibly have in terms of growing spiritually. And he grows and reaches his, his young adult life, and he heads off to India to try and find uh, the meaning of life and, and the, all of the exoticness of it. And, you know, it's, it, it, there's something kind of cool if you go to—here uh, you are as a young person, and you go to some kind of a family reunion or a party or a class reunion, and what are you into? And you say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I'm into Jesus. And it's like, boring! I mean, you get those, those people are a dime a dozen. But if you walk in and you say, man, yeah, I'm a Rastafarian, or whatever uh, you want to call it, and people will look and say, wow, that's cool, that's something that's different. And so there's that attempt to try these different things, to find a different identity. The crazy thing is, is he couldn't shake God. You know God's in India as much as he's here. And he ended up getting saved in India and coming back to the United States and is serving the Lord, and has served the Lord diligently all of these uh, years uh, ever since, And, uh, and, and how often it is that case where somebody takes and says, I thought I knew him, and then I went out and did some kind of a search, and I realized I knew nothing about him, or what I did know I did not appreciate about him, and to realize that the meaning of life uh, the purpose of life was sitting right under their noses all of their life. And then to have that event happen in their life that makes them then realize that. I, that was a, this is a little bit of my story. And so that's why it's important to me. And uh, and so here they're stumbled by the fact that he is uh, a carpenter, and not only that is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? And you, you notice they don't say the son of Joseph. It does kind of indicate we d- we do we do know that Joseph is, uh, goes off the scene uh, very early in the record concerning Jesus. It appears that he dies uh, somewhere in the course of thing. It appears that he's probably. Already died by this point in time because they don't refer to him as the son of Joseph but as the son of Mary. And then they declare him to be the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. And so Jesus was raised in a very large family, wasn't he? Not only the brothers who are named but the sisters, and so they were offended at Him." Now again, verse 3 is an important doctrine concerning uh, clarity on what is uh, a Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she was uh, uh, conceived Jesus as a virgin, as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Everybody agrees with that. We recognize that in the, the, the Bible record. But uh, Roman Catholicism uh, teaches that she never uh, did have sexual intercourse, never did uh, have a family, and and all she remained perpetually uh, a, a virgin. And, uh, but here, and, and they'll take a passage like this where uh, these uh, brothers are clearly referred to uh, by the term brother. There's a tremendous clarity there, but they'll, uh, oftentimes they'll declare that the word brothers there is the same word as brethren, so this could just as easily be a, a description of Jesus' male relatives. It could be cousins, it could be nephews, it could be any of these things. But as you look at the passage, very clearly referring uh, first to Jesus, uh, and uh, Jesus as the son, Mary as the mother, and then the um, immediate brothers and sisters of that family i don't i, I don 't like to uh, poke anything in the eye that that claims uh, and, and desires to represent Christ in the world and and, the, and, and I know there are many, many many born-again Christians in Roman Catholicism. But this thing that's happening today where you've got uh, Protestantism, so to speak, and then you have Roman Catholicism merging together and where there is an overlooking of of the doctrine of the Roman Catholic uh, Church, it is a great mistake, and one day it will bite back uh, seriously. Again, Roman Catholicism, I mean, you want to get uh, beyond... Uh, you know the uniforms and and even transubstantiation, and that the, the the elements of communion become the literal blood and body of Jesus, and all. But the thing that is the real troublesome thing there is that they teach that a person is saved through faith in keeping the sacraments, and now you are adding something to the cross. For salvation, and thus you're saying that what Jesus did upon the cross is not enough for our salvation. And I don't care if I'm the man in the moon. I don't care who says it. You simply cannot go there, and you can't do that. And if you're going to go there, then uh, we have a right uh, to examine that doctrine and to examine under other doctrines. Uh, that uh, cause us to be discerning about what we hear uh, coming from the representation uh, of them in terms of Christianity. And Jesus, as they As they came to this conclusion about Him and were offended about Him, without asking Him anything about it at all, Jesus then said to them, they never posed a question, but He declared clearly what the problem was here, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And again, it's the issue of familiarity. And how often it difficult it is so often for people to receive truth and even receive spiritual truth from someone who is close to us. And how often it takes some stranger or someone out of left field to say the same thing and, and then the person uh, gets it. Every parent understands this. Uh, I mean, every pastor understands this. A parent raising a child, and here you are as a father and mother. You tell your children for all 18 years, don't do this, don't do this. This is why you shouldn't do this. This is why it's wise not to do this. And they fight you, and they fight you, and they fight you, and they fight you. And then one day at 23 years of age, they come back for Thanksgiving. And then they say, guess what, Mom? I just found out that such and such and such and such. And it's what you told them for 18 years. And you just box their ears because you're free to do that as the mom, just take them and twist those ears of them. But that's it. But that, you know, we don't get upset about it. I mean, how many times for me as a pastor, I'll say something over and over and over again through the years. And then someone who has sat and listened to the teaching, they'll go off someplace and come back and say, pastor, I just learned this. And, uh, and, it's, and it's like they never heard it in this room. And that's just kind of the way that it goes. And nobody grinds under it. We're, we're happy at that point that they've learned it and heard it from anybody. And, uh, but very often uh, that, is, uh, that is the case. Uh, the, 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 the person who is speaking who is closest to the person, sometimes it's that familiarity that just kills our, our impact. We still speak it, but sometimes it takes someone... Uh, from the outside saying the same things. And Jesus, He would do no mighty works there in Nazareth except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and He healed them. And then He marveled because of their unbelief. And it was they marveled at His teaching. He marveled at their unbelief. Uh, uh, unbelief, and, uh, and then he went on about his business, and again, it's very, very sad, just like when he left the area of Gadara after the people asked him to leave, after he cast the demons out of, uh, out of uh, legion and in, into, uh, into the swine, and they asked him to leave and he left, and here this is the reaction that he got in his hometown, and then he went about the villages in a circuit, and then in these other places they will rejoice in him and recognize Him for who He is in a way that uh, didn't happen in in His hometown. Now, when it says that He could do no mighty uh, works there or miracles there in verse 5, it doesn't mean that... um, uh, because of their lack of faith, that, some are, that our lack of faith somehow binds the power of Jesus in his life, that it's like kryptonite or something, and he, and he can't quite fight uh, through that. So somehow he hits this unbelief in Nazareth, and uh, he, he is literally without the ability to do the miracles without their faith. That's not true about God. God can do anything he wants anytime he wants, <laughs> he always has the power to do it. What it probably refers to, is it because of their unbelief and such a low level of faith, that in the city of Nazareth, instead of crowds of people coming to him for healing and for deliverance, probably only a handful did. And the handful that did come to him, he met their needs and then uh, moved on. But a very, very different response from what he had experienced uh, uh, elsewhere in, uh, in, the, uh, in the other Uh, uh, other cities both before this and then after that. It is important, I think, and I I exhort myself on this. It is important in the light of what happens here in Nazareth to whether I'm uh, a child uh, or a youth or whether I am a husband or whether I'm a wife or whether I'm in a local church, it is important that we do not shut out the voice of God through those who are closest to us simply because of our familiarity with them. They are most often the people who speak the clearest into our lives. And the vibe and the whole attitude of Nazareth can carry into our lives as well. We should receive spiritual truth and, and, and anything of, of the Lord through whatever vessel Of the Lord decides to use. And then he called the twelve to himself, and he began uh, to send them out. And so here they are being sent out. It's important to be sent out. Uh, on, uh, in, into ministry, uh, and uh, and he sent them out two by two. It's great to go out in twos. It's very wise for them to go out in twos. I'm glad that when God sent us out to Modesto, that uh, Karen and I went out in twos, and because you can lean on one another, one another for perspective, and and all of that rather than being alone and. And then in their case, you know, as they're witnessing and sharing, somebody is interceding while the one person is sharing the gospel, and then when the other shares, the other begins to intercede, and just the encouragement that comes with two-by-twos. And then He gave them power over unclean spirits. And so He's sending them out, as you'll see in verse 12. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They're preaching the gospel, repentance and and. Uh, a belief in Jesus, and He gives them now power that when they preach this gospel, uh, a power to do miracles so that that would get the attention of the people, they would recognize this isn't just some religious charlatan that's making the way through. This person has a power that only God can give them, and so He, he gave them the power. And whatever God calls us to do, no matter what it is, is called upon our lives. He will always give us the power uh, to then... Uh, fulfill what it is that He's called us to do. And then He, he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, uh, uh, no bag, uh, uh, no bread, uh, uh, no copper, no money in their money belts, but to wear uh, sandals and not to put on two tunics. And so He calls on them to just head out and to trust God that God would take care of them through their ministry, they were to live uh, very, very uh, uh, simply. And I I think about, as I I read uh, verses 8 and 9, I think about how uh, refreshing uh, uh, that is. Um, I I, uh, saw a a brochure uh, um, probably six weeks to two months ago where a church was Uh, wanting to start uh, two churches out of that church and uh, plant them in uh, a couple of areas in the Bay Area. And, uh, and so they, want, they approached uh, their church body in order to support these two uh, teams that would go out to plant a church in, in each city. And I think one of them, uh, the offering that they wanted was 350000 and the other was uh, $250,000 or $300,000 uh, for that. So that the senior pastor and his wife, a worship leader and his wife, uh, could go out and be supported for a year or two and the, and the money in order to rent the room and then to buy a sound system and to get started with uh, with with all of that and uh, this uh, This kind of thing that sometimes uh, rarely but every once in a while uh, characterizes even uh, missionaries before they go out. Uh, they want to have uh, all of the support all lined up. Uh, They want a pension plan. They want a dental plan. They want a medical plan. They want uh, want support. They want uh, a place to meet. Everything is supposed to be supported before they head out and and, uh, begin their ministry. I don't have a problem, of course, with supporting missionaries or supporting uh, churches or anything like that. But what needs to happen is that everyone uh, has to have And needs to have faith in their own calling before they ask anyone else to have faith in their calling. And a willingness to take a step of faith and to believe that I believe that this is what God has called me to do. And if nobody gives me anything, if nobody bears witness to it, if nobody gets it related to my life, This is the best that I can hear, God, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this. And when people see a calling of God upon a person's life like that, but they see that they believe in their own calling to the point of sacrifice before they ever approach others to believe in their calling, that kind of person is never going to lack support for what God has called them to do. I loved listening to a Bible study many, 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 many years ago in which the speaker was talking about so many things, and this was one of them, and he was talking about the presence of God. All you need is the presence of God with your calling. And he said, and I forget what country he used, but he said, if God has called you to Argentina, then fly to Argentina. If you can't fly to Argentina, then drive to Argentina. And if you don't have a car to drive to Argentina, then take a bus to Argentina. And if you don't have the money for a bus ticket to Argentina, then walk to Argentina. And if you can't walk to Argentina, then ask someone around you to point you in what direction is Argentina, and then face that direction, and fall on your face in that direction. And that's the kind of spirit that's required to survive and to thrive in ministry, one in which we believe ourselves in what God has called us to, because no amount of money and no amount of support and no amount of anything else can take the place of knowing that and believing that and then stepping out in faith in what I believe about my own life. I should never ask anyone to support what I'm not willing to sacrificially uh, believe and act upon related to my own life. And, and here you've got them going out. Jesus says, don't, uh, don't go out and with all of these things. Go out simply, and I will take care of you of you. And I'll tell you, when Karen and I moved to Modesto, we sold a house in Napa and we had some equity from it, and we used that uh, to help support us and uh, ourselves. And, and uh, uh, the first two years of ministering here in Modesto, I begged God for my job back at the phone company. I begged Him, what have I done to my family? What in the knucklehead uh, decision have I made in doing this? Quitting the phone company, I mean, the, the, next to the federal government, the example of security and life, and then heading into a calling that I had no idea was not prepared because nobody can prepare you for it, for the challenges w- would be there. The spiritual warfare alone related to it. But what Karen and I learned there, and the refining of our motives and the refining between God and myself of whether I was really called to do this. And it was time to either get that settled with God between me and Him before anybody else started to give me artificial support before that had been settled between God and myself. And I learned things in that chapter and in that season that I would have been robbed of if I had been supported in the way that so many are demanding support in, in, in heading out to begin their ministries today. I'm not saying that missionaries and churches shouldn't be supported. Of course, they should be, but they shouldn't be supported before the pastor or before the missionary is willing to demonstrate their own faith sacrificially uh, first. First. And this is a wonderful test that he gives to them, the simplicity of heading out in this way. Their lifestyle was to be simple, unencumbered with a whole bunch of stuff. Go out there, I've told you my calling, I've given you power, and now trust in me and see what in the world happens. And the crazy things that I don't even read about here is him sending them out with a $54 million jet I might have seen that in the news recently. <laughs> I mean, what sense of entitlement and self-importance would I have to have to ask the body of Christ to take $54 million out of circulation in the work of the kingdom so that I don't have to fly, not coach, but so that I don't have to fly first class. And it is one of the occupational hazards of pastors and leaders in the body of Christ, this great sense of self-importance, this great sense of entitlement. And because it is an occupational hazard, here Jesus takes with these 12, and he sends them out in this kind of a way, and to discover, would they be willing to go under these terms? And to their credit, uh, they did. And he said to them, in whatever place you enter into a house, stay there till you depart from that place. Jesus knew that as he gave them the gospel to preach, And as that gospel was then being confirmed with people being delivered of demons and lepers being cleansed and people being healed, that his disciples were never going to lack a meal. They were never going to lack a place to stay out of the gratitude of the lives that they were impacting, that it was all going to get taken care of, but taken care of in the course of the work. And so he says to them, he's not worried, listen, here's what you need to do, plan B in case you can't find, get a roof over your head. He knows that's going to happen. He just says, whoever invites you first into your home when you're staying in a particular village or city, and you're in that place, and that's the first place you go to, and you get an offer of a better place, don't take the better place, because it'll distract from the message. And it'll distract from, uh, it'll make you look like you're, you know, you're, uh, you're looking for a better offer within the ministry, and it will dis- diminish and misrepresent the heart of God. And whoever does not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from those cities and from those places, shake off the dust from uh, under your feet as a testimony against them, and verily, verily, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than for that uh, uh, city. And so here this persecution that they would face in the midst of all of this and the wiping dust off your feet, you would travel through a village and, or through an area that didn't want anything to do with the gospel, didn't want anything to do with you. And Jesus said, when you come to the edge of the city, that you're being thrust out of. He knew what it was to get thrust out of a city. And he said, when you get to the edge of the city, and they could do it literally, but figuratively speaking, to wipe the dust off of your feet was to say, I don't want to take even the dust from this place. And Jesus doesn't call the disciples to do this out of an unrighteous anger or to do this out of a pride or out of an arrogance. What he's, what he's wanting them to do here is don't take anything from that town that minimizes the seriousness of their rejection of the gospel and their rejection of, of salvation. Don't do anything that minimizes that uh, at all. And then he talks about here uh, that, that for those uh, cities and people that reject uh, the uh, the gospel and will not hear you, as he puts it. There, he said it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Uh, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament? They can't even find where they existed. To this day, gone, gone, completely judged. I mean, absolutely nothing less. And you think what? judgment could be worse than the judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet Jesus says the judgment that will fall on people for a lifelong rejection of the gospel will be worse than that judgment. And it's just a very, very serious business to reject the gospel. And uh, I know I've got a Christian audience, 99.9% here in the room. But we need to hear it. We need to hear it as much as the world needs to hear it. And for us in our thinking, I live in the same country that you live in, the same state that you live in. and And we are the proverbial frog being boiled in the water because the water's being boiled ever so slowly. And we just kind of get used to people rejecting the gospel within our family, within our peers, the people that are around us. And if people have told us to stop reject, uh, preaching the gospel to them, I honor that. I stop unless God just tells me uh, do it anyway on them, but I recognize their free will uh, on, on the issue. But to just stop and for ourselves, I wonder today... I wonder how many Christians believe, actually believe, that there is a life after this one and that not everyone is going to heaven and that to reject Jesus Christ as my Savior is to set myself up for a judgment that is worse than the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. The world can lose sight of it. It will lose sight of it if we allow them to, but they'll for sure lose sight of it if we lose sight of it. And to once again re-examine, re-look at the relationships within our lives, within our family, within our, uh, 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 within our marriage, within our homes, within uh, our, our friends, and within our peers, and to once again realize if they die in this condition of rejecting Christ... This is the judgment that is coming their way. And then to say, Lord, what do you want me to do with that knowledge I've shared with them? They know that I'm a Christian. They know all of these things. But I do not want to fall asleep myself. I don't want to do regarding them what they have done to themselves, and that is fallen asleep to the danger of eternity being separated from Christ. And what do I have to do, Lord, in order to stay aware of that and sensitive to your Holy Spirit in not being silent related to this gospel and to share it even where we have shared it before and where it has been uh, rejected. And so they went out and they preached that people should repent. And that's a word that's being lost today, the word repent. They called on people to have a change of mind about the direction that they were going in towards sin, and to turn from that direction and to turn to God and now uh, to follow after Him. It was a strong message. It was a straight message that was was being uh, declared in the early church, and and they. Then they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them again, God confirming His Word and His gospel with accompanying signs and wonders. We'll stop there tonight because uh, this account concerning uh, Herod's guilty conscience over his murder of John the Baptist is uh, is uh, some valuable things in there that I simply don't want to, to rush through tonight. So if the worship team would come forward, I'd like them to close us up in a couple of worship songs.